Hello and welcome to Deep Dive from the Japan Times. I'm Oscar Boyd. This week, world leaders are gathered in Glasgow, Scotland for COP26, a meeting of nations that has been billed by British Prime Minister Boris Johnson as our last chance to avert catastrophic climate change. I must be clear that if Glasgow fails, then the whole thing fails. The Paris Agreement will have crumpled at the first reckoning. The world's only viable mechanism for dealing with climate change will be holed beneath the waterline. At this point, the science behind climate change could not be clearer. In August, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, otherwise known as the IPCC, released its most comprehensive report to date on the state of the global climate and concluded that it is unequivocal that human influence has warmed the atmosphere, ocean and land. We are heating this world and we will suffer enormous consequences if we cannot reduce our emissions by the middle of this century. Japan is an important part of this in two ways. First, it itself is a significant emitter of CO2, the fifth largest globally by total annual emissions. Second, it is a country that is exceptionally vulnerable to climate change. I think anyone who lives here will identify with that. In 2019, the Climate Risk Index put Japan fourth on its list of countries most affected by extreme weather. In 2018, Japan ranked first on that very same list. The climate crisis is here, says my guest this week, Japan Times contributor Eric Margolis, and it is affecting everything from the strength of typhoons and frequency of flooding to the blooming of the cherry blossoms and the turning of the autumn leaves. This episode is a replay of a conversation Eric and I had in February of this year. But with COP26 playing out this week and climate change once again at the top of the global agenda, it feels more relevant than ever. Eric Margolis, welcome to Deep Dive. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. So, earlier this year, you wrote an article titled The True Cost of Climate Change on Japan. What made you want to write this article now? Well, I, I do a fair amount of. Reporting on the climate crisis, not just in Japan. And one of the most important things that I have come to recognize as I report on climate change is that it's really important that we move from thinking about the effects of the climate crisis uh, from, the, from the future tense into the present tense. So a lot of the, a lot of the, the things that were once projections. You know, the sea levels are projected to rise, temperatures are projected to rise. That is happening. And it happened in 2020. So I wanted to write a sort of a factual piece that's saying this is literally what, the clim- what climate change did to Japan in 2020. Well, it was a really good read. Thank and you. And I'll link it in the show notes for anyone else who might be interested in reading the article. I think what I was really surprised by, though, was the extent to which Japan is already being affected by climate change. Because, yeah, you're totally right. You know, I used to think of climate change as something that might happen towards the middle or end of the century rather than in 2021. But the last couple of years has really seen the projections that were made towards the start of this century begin to manifest as all sorts of things, you know, bigger storms, wildfires, more flooding. Yeah, the list could go on. Right. So, what are some of the examples of climate change we've seen actually taking place in Japan? Yeah, so climate change is, I think of it as kind of like a, a series of causes and effects, right? So, the root cause is obviously greenhouse gas emissions, whether that's CO2 or methane or deforestation. 
and that, you know, it causes the temperature to go up and that sort of has climate ripple effects from there and then economic ripple effects from there and then cultural ripple effects from there. Mm-hmm. Especially last 10 years, but really last 30 years, the climate effects have really hit Japan. So that means that we've observed increased temperatures in Japan. We've observed more days of heavy precipitation, fewer day, rainy days, and less snow, uh, and, and less snow depth. And really, it, the last four or five years have been remarkable because we've seen really damaging typhoons uh, or rain-related disasters almost every single year. Typhoon Lan in 2017, Jebi 2018, obviously uh, 2019, and torrential rain in 2018, 2017, and 2019 and 2022. So, you know, we've seen huge climate impacts on Japan every year that are just getting more costly and costly. And that's sort of the starting point and the, the economic effects come after that. Mm-hmm. I think one of the interesting lines that I pulled from your article is that the Ministry of the Environment came out with a report in 2018 that said not only was Japan warming, but it was warming at a faster rate than the global average, which will also certainly contribute towards more of this extreme weather, right? Yeah, and and there's the precipitation is one part of it, and then there's also pure heat. The Ministry of Environment also reported that Japan is getting an extra heat wave day once every five years. So, you know, that's another day, an extra day every couple of years. That's 38, 39 degrees Celsius. Uh, And we've seen and we've seen these heat waves, quite frankly, kill a lot of people uh, through heat stroke and uh, adaptation to a lot of these things, uh, whether it's rain related disasters or heat related disasters. We tend to adapt, which reduces some of the initial damage. So in, in really bad heat waves in consecutive years, you see less people die in the, when it happens again because behaviors change. But uh, that doesn't reduce the threat and it doesn't do enough to c- compensate for the damage that is being done. Yeah, and I think anyone who has spent a summer in Japan will know how miserably hot it gets on some days. And more of the same or worse, really doesn't seem like a good thing. What kinds of costs are we seeing associated with these extreme precipitation and heat events alongside the deaths you just mentioned? Yeah, so first you have pure damages. So the there was severe uh, rain and flooding in, in Kyushu this summer, in addition to killing 64 people and causing 200,000 residents to evacuate. You have rivers overflowing, mudslides, and just sheer disaster damage of destroyed buildings, houses and bridges being swept away, infrastructure being destroyed. And the, the price tag on that this year in Kyushu was about 550 billion yen. And, and um, some of the typhoons in the last few years have, have seen closer to 2 trillion yen. And, and that's, just in, that's just in damages to, to buildings, pure sort of destruction. Uh, you then also need to calculate the sort of indirect economic effects of that on jobs, on tourism, on, on the local economies. And that's really, that's hard to calculate um, because these effects spread so wide. And most experts agree that those damages usually are more than the direct 
destruction of property and infrastructure. And related to that, one quote that you had in your piece was from Miguel Esteban, a professor of environmental and civil engineering at Waseda University. And he said, and to quote, everything is at risk. From an engineering point of view, it would probably be better to move everyone out of this country and resettle them elsewhere. Which, you know, that's a very bold statement to make. So what did he mean by that? Yeah, well, he, I think he, he, he did sort of mean it in tongue-in-cheek. He, he, said, he said after that, of course, I'm not going anywhere. But I, I think he's, he's pointing out that there's so many practical challenges here in terms of the way climate change is going to affect the economy, affect infrastructure. It just requires so much adaptation uh, from every level of society that if you're if you're just going from a purely what is the simplest way to solve all of these problems it would be everyone leave of course it's not it's not happening but it's a it's a way to think about the enormity of the challenge mm. and i guess a part of his calculation is based on where most people live in japan which is in low-lying coastal areas you know, most of japan's major cities are on the sea tokyo's on the sea osaka's on the sea and assume all of these will become vulnerable to sea level rise over time. Yeah, the the rising sea levels uh, for for Japan, uh, and it's not uh, you know, rising sea levels are posing immediate threats in in many places around the world. In Japan, most experts agree that it's not uh, an immediate issue for Japan, but from a long term perspective. Yes, the the pretty much all of the infrastructure needs to be updated to withstand a meter rise in sea levels. Uh, and of course, it's not just the sea levels themselves that are the concern, but uh, storm surge. Uh, and there's a it, it made the news a few years ago, but during Typhoon Jetty, a a floodproof runway at Kansai Airport was flooded. This this infrastructure is simply outdated. And so um, Miguel Esteban did a study uh, and he and his team calculated that it would cost 370 billion yen to upgrade Tokyo's infrastructure to properly defend the city against rising sea levels, whereas the potential cost of inaction could exceed 100 trillion yen. Wow. So you're, you're talking about, I mean, massive numbers, but a very, very large payout if cities are able and the whole nation is able to invest in upgraded infrastructure. One of the things I liked about your article is that you also wrote quite extensively about how people and industries outside of urban centres are being affected by climate change currently. And you focused a lot on agriculture so how is the agriculture industry being affected by climate change? Agriculture is being severely impacted by climate change already. If you if you're going just from farm to farm, right, you ask you go to a, a farmer, you ask him, is climate change affecting you? They might say yes, they might say no. You go, you know, every every experience is going to be a little different, mm -hmm. but zooming out, uh, in 2012, the Environment Ministry reported increases in damages across all different crops. And so they've been observing this already for years. So again, it's one of those past tense moments in 2020 
uh, rice yields were affected by high temperatures, uh, especially in Kyushu. Um, you know, apples are being damaged by high fall temperatures uh, in, in Nagano Prefecture and northern Japan. You've seen pretty much every crop, or not every crop, but many crops, especially fruits, uh, have already reported damages due to high summer temperatures. It's not all bad. Some, some farms are doing fine. I, I spoke mm-hmm. with the, the JA group in Aomori Prefecture, and you know, they, they said that you know, their vegetables are, are getting along fine, but they're still concerned because they've seen much less snowfall in recent years. Uh, they're, they're concerned about their apples. It's for, so for the farms that aren't already being impacted, they're uh, starting to really perceive the impact. And I imagine this must be particularly worrying as well because of the impact it might have on Japan's already very low food subsistence rates. I think the country has one of the lowest food subsistence rates of any country in the world. One of the other stats I pulled from your article is that there's a projected 30% decrease in rice yields over the next 50 years in basically every area except for the very north of Japan due to increased heat and precipitation damaging those crops. Yeah, the, um, the geographic impact is startling if you look at some of these maps with uh, those projections where you know you see kind of all except the the mountains in the middle of uh, Honshu and then up to the north basically in all of the yeah in all of the highly populated areas uh, the extreme heat causes real problems for rice and it's uh, it's going to be hit very hard in in the long run so moving from one Japanese staple to another you write a lot about fisheries and how they're going to be impacted over the next several decades what changes are we seeing? in and amongst fisheries? Fisheries are really interesting because um, the, the change is, is pretty amazing. It's happening so fast. Uh, the, Japan has an interesting uh, marine, I don't know if you call it geography, but Japan is such a, it runs so far from north to south that tropical fish in Okinawa and, and southern, southern Kyushu are meeting up with temperate fish. And it all goes all the way up, you know, to... To much colder waters in Hokkaido, and in real time, we're seeing all the fish from the south push north hard. Uh, one of the one of the most striking things to me that uh, I found in this reporting was how was the speed at which tropical reef species are moving northward. You've seen Okinawan fish like parrotfish and rabbitfish uh, are starting to be seen in mainland Japan and, 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 and fish common to mainland Japan like yellowtail you're now seeing in Hokkaido. And uh, fisher, fishers in Hokkaido are having to switch from salmon to yellowtail. Fishers uh, in Tokyo Bay are having to, to switch away from, from cherry base, from abalone. It's just a huge, all of the species are being swapped out. Uh, and it, economically, it's, it's, you'd think it'd just be fine to swap one fish for another but these fish still need to be priced in the market so it does ter- uh, cause short-term problems for for fishers because they there's no the fish that they catch are, are are worthless in the local market and does it cause problems amongst fishers who have to re-equip their boats or their gear so they can actually go out and catch these different species that are now occupying the waters they're familiar with 
I haven't heard about that. I, I think it's certainly possible. But the for fishing, my, the concern, I think, is certainly, you know, the fishing industry is going to have to adapt. And, certain, and cert, it's not going to be a smooth one-to-one transition for everything. Uh, the water temperatures are causing real problems for seaweed. Uh, there's been a lot of reporting about that, especially this summer. In in Tokyo Bay and sort of the need for to turn to Korea and other to other foreign markets for seaweed that's a problem, but also uh, I think it's a it's a cultural and ecological concern as well, which you can really see with fish. Fisher fishermen in Hokkaido can catch yellowtail, but it, it's really a, a huge change, right? What I mean, if you go to Hakodate, you go to oh, you you want to eat salmon and. It's kind of tragic in a way if that becomes a relic of the past, sort of killed off by climate change. In the same way, farmers can also adapt, and farmers are adapting to change. You know, they can swap out vegetables for, and fruits for more tropical resistant fruits. But, you know, you, you come across the same thing. Apples. Apples are, are heat sensitive. And, you know, it's really sad if, um, you know, towns across Japan that have been known for their apples are unable to grow them anymore. So this is where the effects of climate change ripple out into the cultural sphere as well, as you said earlier. Exactly. How are people adapting to these changes that they're experiencing? A, bi- a big one is obviously the adaptation of, of swapping one thing for another, the cold weather thing for the hot weather thing. So... In southern Japan, uh, farmers are starting to grow different kinds of oranges and avocados that uh, coat better with warmer climates. Your fishermen are, are in Hokkaido are switching to yellowtail. And uh, some, it, it hasn't happened a lot, but one sake brewery made a sort of a splash by relocating uh, from Gifu Prefecture to Hokkaido. As in they moved the whole brewery? Move it, you're moving the brewery. Yeah, and 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 brewing their brewing their sake in a different place altogether, and I, I think that example is really interesting because it goes to show the limitations of adaptation. Right, this company survived. They they moved their sake brewery elsewhere, but it's a loss for it's a loss for Gifu. It's a loss for that local economy. And, you know, that's, that's, that's the way the market works, right? There are always going to be winners and losers. But uh, I think you're going to see some winners with climate change and adaptations, but you are going to see a lot, a lot of losers. Well, Eric, thank you so much for joining me today. No, thanks for having me. Yeah. That was Eric Margolis speaking with me there back in February. Next week, we hope to look at what was achieved at COP26 and what Japan can do to lower its contribution to global emissions. This is an area I'd love to cover more on Deep Dive. So if you know anyone in the climate change space who you'd think would make a great guest on the show, please let me know. Email me at deepdive at japantimes.co.jp. If you're listening from Japan, I hope you enjoyed the national holiday today. If you're listening from overseas, then I hope you're having a happy november 3rd until next time thanks as always for listening potsukare sama